Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. And we like to talk about murder. We do. Sometimes. And uh, that's the episode. No. <laughs> and have a great day. Yeah. Nah. Uh, it, welcome back to the show. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. I am super excited about today's episode. Yes, you are. This is well, this is one that I think when we like first started the podcast was on my original list of like things that I really mm-hmm. want to talk about. Um, so that's really exciting. <laughs> After that last long episode that we had. This, this is, is gonna be light the, and short. Yes, this is gonna be the palate cleanser. This is gonna be the lemon oh, sorbet to your That is a very good descriptor. Yes. The palate <laughs> cleanser. Oh my god. You'll have to have waited two weeks to get your palate cleansed so apologies for that but that's okay i mean at least we're reliable yes every two weeks like clockwork after every time we have an episode that's like too heavy just do something light yeah we try to do that yeah yeah Yeah. uh you know we don't want to i mean you came here for murder what do you expect yeah it's gonna get gruesome we do have a great episode for you guys today but first let's head to the newsroom This week, our news comes from New Hampshire. News Hampshire? News Hampshire. (laughs) Comes from specifically the mountains in New Hampshire. There was a missing hiker that kind of... Went missing. um, Well, (laughs) sparked this large search operation... The only problem was, is they actually found him in a luxury hotel. Um, so the man was named Christopher Chomley. He's 70 years old. He's an economics professor at Boston University, but he had planned this hike in the New Hampshire mountains to go over two mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had failed to return home afterwards, of course. Well, what happened is he completed the <laughs> whole deal went instead of going home right away went to this luxury hotel to get some rest when he got to the hotel he sent his wife a message at 1 a.m to let her know that he was fine Mm -hmm. the problem was the message never sent and he didn't check to confirm that the message had sent so his wife who is now panicking calls authorities and reports him missing why didn't she call his phone i don't know (laughs) couldn't tell you Um, and maybe it was like an email or like, you know, I don't know if it was, it doesn't really specify if it was like on a smartphone or on a computer or whatever it was. Um, so they, they pulled in 25 rescuers and snow vehicles and a national guard helicopter, um, specialist cold weather equipment, like all this stuff to go searching for him. Um, and they managed to summit both mountains. They were looking around. Um, then a couple hours into their search, they had the information relayed to them that he was actually um, at this hotel. Now, um, <laughs> the problem is uh, he might actually be billed for the search efforts. I think his um, wife should be billed. For uh, neglect or uh, negligent actions. My question is, why didn't they track his phone before they started taking out all these search parties? I'm not sure. To pinpoint his um, last location, you know, like a real detective would do. Yeah. New Hampshire. <laughs> I'm, I just find it very interesting. And I mean, according to... Um, like the state, the state law allows for officials to like try to recoup the costs of a rescue if they find that the person behaved recklessly. I feel like if they were to take this to court, it's hard to say that with certainty because he did send a message when he went to the hotel. It's not like, in my opinion, I'm thinking... 
he did what he was supposed to do. It's not his fault that it didn't go through. And like, obviously, I don't always 100% of the time check that like my text messages and all my emails and stuff go through either. So I get that. Um, they haven't. So I mean, you could say it's sent on your end, but just that it wasn't received. That it wasn't yet. received, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of stuff involved with this. We'll have to see what happens. But they haven't like had a final amount approved that they're trying to charge him. Um, the article does mention that in 2009, a teenager named Scott Mason was issued a bill of $25,000 after a three-day mountain search, which was the largest. Uh, bill since that law had been introduced in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, the largest bill for like a recoup cost on a rescue mission. So he might get charged for that. The thing about that law is, it, first of all, it's bullshit. Second of all, that's your fucking job. Yeah. When someone goes missing, it's your job. Why are, Why are you trying to make someone pay for something that is your job? And also, you're not paying that out of your pocket. That's tax money right. from people who live right. in that area. So fuck I, that I understand the reason to put that into effect because they're, you know, for instance, if you have somebody who willfully goes missing um, or like somebody who's trying to disappear, the family doesn't know that, but they're disappearing on purpose. You put out all these search efforts and then you, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I get that part of it, but... I think there definitely needs to be some sort of standard that says this is when somebody is behaving recklessly versus, oops, technology failed. Oops, technology. (laughs) Yeah. So that happened. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, I'd be curious. I think that one, just because of it's not like a huge, huge story, might be hard to follow up on, but I'm going to try and follow up on it and see if he actually gets charged any fines. It's not even his fault. It's his wife's fault for panicking. Yeah. And then it's the police fault. Well, when not- you know your husband's up in the mountains by himself. Fucking checking his location before they started searching. Well, he's also, what did I say? He was 70. So his wife is probably around 70. And that's like, you know, maybe she's just not as technology how you, minded. How would she know where the fuck he is anyway? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. New Hampshire! <laughs> We're going to move on to Netflix and kill. Let's, let's do that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Um, so this week we are talking about something that has not come out as of this recording that I am very excited about. It's called Evil Genius. By the time this, um, episode airs, that series will be out. It's actually getting released on May 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing a lot of hype around this one. I am so yeah. very excited <laughs> because again, this is one of those things that I'm like, well, I I would be old enough to remember it. It happened in 2003, but it's just I wasn't paying attention. So um, in 2003, a 46-year-old man named Brian Wells, um, he was a was a it's so complicated uh he was a pizza delivery man they dubbed this the pizza pizza. bomber but he had a metal collar around his neck um that apparently had a bomb in it it does explode and kill this gentleman um what happens is apparently it's supposed to be a scavenger hunt where he was told to go to X location, do this and do this and do this. Um, One of the things he was told to do was to rob a bank, which is why the police showed up and he ended up with this, you know, outside in front of all the police cars with this bomb collar. Um, It takes a look at this case and the players in it. There's a lot holy moly, there's a lot to this. Um, People pointing fingers at each other and... Um, like, you know, conspiracy theories. When I saw the bomb collar, it seemed very like Saw, like the Saw movies to Mm -hmm. me. You know what I mean? Like that kind of, you got to do this and then you'll get, you know, the key to take off your collar or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's called Evil Genius, the True Story of America's Most Diabolical Bank Heist. It comes out on May 11th. Like I said, it should be out by now. Um... I'm very excited to check this out. Maybe we'll come back to this after we've had a chance to watch it um, and talk about it. I had never heard of this case until I saw the trailer for this. So check it out. (laughs) Let us know what you think. I (laughs) love these bizarre things. Do you remember this happening in 2003? Yeah. They like, there was like video footage that they had to get rid of. That they had to get rid of? Yeah. Because it like showed him fucking exploding. Oh, because they were probably following it on live TV. Yes. Oops. (laughs) 
So, yeah. That was probably oh, the sensational boy. aspect of that. Like, oh, yep. And someone died. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, check it out. I think that's all we got at the beginning of the show this week. Yeah. Right? I think it's going to I think it's going to be short and sweet. We'll see. It is. Like I <laughs> we said, we went say that. I know. We went on happens. the last episode. It just was a long one. Sometimes they accidentally turn out to be really long. <laughs> um, this week we are talking about one of my favorite topics, the law and more specifically lawyers. Dun, dun. Yeah, so normally <laughs> I would have a trigger warning here, but I don't think we really need it this week. Nope. Um, put this in your memory bank in case you need a lighter episode to go back to when we get into really intense <laughs> shit. Um, but we are going to be talking about some pretty famous lawyers, I think. Yes. People you might have yeah. heard of, people might not. Um, we don't generally talk about counsel all that much, so this is going to be kind of nice. Yeah. Like, I, like I said at the beginning of the show, um, I have wanted to do this person for a very long time. His name, you might have heard of him. His name is F. Lee Bailey. And, and is that raising any? Flea. Flea Bailey. <laughs> um, he represented several high profile clients, which we will get into. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start off with a little background. Do it. Um, he was born Francis Lee Bailey Jr., which I don't think I ever knew his real name was Francis, but yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just called him Ethley Bailey the whole time. Francine. Francine. Uh, He was born in Altham, Massachusetts on June 10th, 1933. His mom was a teacher and a nursery school director, and his father was an advertising salesman. And he was described as being like this kind of bright but distracted kind of sounded very standard to me. Like your standard kid, you know, he's, he can do it, but he's got to apply himself. Um, Things got kind of worse for him after his family or his father left his family in 1943. Oof, the 40s. Your favorite time. I know. The worst time to leave your family. <laughs> the middle of a war. Yeah, right? <laughs> Bye, guys. Gotta Going go. To oh, there's wink, a war. Wink. See ya. No, no. Yeah, right. Uh, after his father left, Bailey was sent away to this boarding school in New Hampshire because his mom really felt like she couldn't handle being a single mother to a child who was very distracted and probably getting up to, you know, shenanigans, mm-hmm. um, very rambunctious. Uh, but this kind of seemed to be what he needed because he went off to the sporting school and did pretty well. He did well enough to earn a scholarship to Kimberly Union Academy for high school, which sounds kind of hoity-toity. Uh, he did pretty well there and then moved on to Harvard University to study, but he actually ended up dropping out of Harvard in 1952 because he went to go join the military. Ah, uh, yes. Korean War? Yes. Yes, that's what they do. Sure. I'm, we all know how I am with the history. War. <laughs> the war. One of the many. Um, Bailey started in the Navy, and then shortly thereafter, he moved to the Marines and got stationed out in Cherry Point, uh, North Carolina. While he was in the military, he actually volunteered as a legal officer and like worked in the courts uh, in the armed forces. Later, they actually promoted him to a chief legal officer, and he handled hundreds of cases as well as working for uh, as a private investigator for a civilian lawyer. Once he was finished in the military... Uh, Bailey attended Boston University Law School mainly because they accepted his military experience in lieu of having a uh, undergrad degree or the required amount of years of undergrad education. Um, From there, he actually graduated top of his class. Um, He achieved the highest grade point average in the school's history, I think, still to this day. Um, he received his LLB, which is just his bachelor, bachelor of Law, and he was admitted to the Massachusetts Bar along with setting up his own law practice in 1960. So that all sounds pretty normal. Nothing, I wasn't really surprised about anything in his like background. I hadn't really done a deep dive into his background yet, so eh, it seems pretty standard. So let's talk about some of the people he represented. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets juicy. Juicy, juicy. So the first person that was really of note was a man named George Edgerly, also known as or known for the torso murders. One of the many torsos. Yeah, right. (laughs) Which one? Um, He was hired to represent Edgerly, who was accused of murdering and dismembering his wife. 
Uh, Bailey had actually attended the Keeler Polygraph Institute in Chicago, where he received an education in lie detector tests. I was very careful with this wording (laughs) because they called him an expert in polygraph tests. Um, If you have listened to our episode on junk science, I think we talked about polygraph tests there. Um, It's not exactly a science science as (laughs) hard evidence. (laughs) It's definitely an investigative tool. And I have a hard time acknowledging that you can be an expert in polygraphs. I don't know. To me, it's very... It's basically just like an EKG machine. (laughs) You're just watching someone's heart rate. Yeah. And it's like, people's heart rate... My heart rate goes up when I have to walk across the office in my work. Like, Right? (laughs) It's like, your heart rate can go up for any reason. I used to have, like, I thought I had a heart condition, and they put me on a heart monitor, Mm -hmm. and the heart monitor would go off anytime your um, heart rate spiked. I would just be sitting there. All of a sudden, your heart's going crazy. Paint, like in painting class, it went off, and it was just like, meet, 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 meet. And I'm like, oh, I'm literally <laughs> just sitting here. Yeah, right. So it's like, it's, your heart rate can spike for any reason, no reason. It just does what it wants. Like, mm-hmm. that's not reliable. And like I said, it is a great tool, I think, for investigations, but it's not something that's widely accepted in the court system as hard evidence. Right. Um, and generally, uh, you try not to get polygraphs admitted as evidence, especially if you're on the defense side. I mean, it kind of depends on where you're at, but... Usually they just use them like, okay, they failed, so let's investigate further kind of a thing. Right, yeah. Um, So Edgerly's counsel actually hired Bailey because of his polygraph um, expertise, quote-unquote expertise. Um, But during the course of this legal case, uh, Edgerly's attorney suffered a heart attack. And so Bailey took over the defense for him. Um, Edgerly was acquitted. And this case later became the story behind the movie, The Fugitive. Which is like my favorite. I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh my God. I know. I know. Uh, in my room, playing video games. <laughs> like I do every now, day. Is it the original Fugitive or the remake with Harrison Ford? Uh, I'm assuming the original. Okay. Because <laughs> there was also a The Fugitive TV show, which, yes. which is actually based off a different Fugitive. Fugitive. <laughs> also, rep- also represented by F. Lee Bailey in court, mm-hmm. oddly okay. enough. Um... So the next person he represented was Sam Shepard, who was originally found guilty of murdering his pregnant wife in 1954. Um, Bailey was actually hired by Sam Shepard's brother, Stephen, to aid in the appeal that they were processing in 1966. Um, He was able to successfully argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that Sam Shepard had been denied due process and won him a retrial on the grounds that there was like this carnival atmosphere within the courtroom mm-hmm. um, that contributed to the outcome of the trial. He specifically cited the judge deciding, like the judge just decided he wasn't going to sequester the jury. Okay. Um, and he never gave the jury instruction to disregard and ignore media coverage, which is super important. You might think that's a given, but if the judge does not give specifically that instruction, that could be bad right. news for your case um, as a prosecutor if, if the defense tries to appeal. Obviously, this all worked in his favor um, because the retrial produced a not guilty verdict. So he was able to appeal and um, Sam Shepard was actually acquitted on the retrial. The next big name that everybody, I hope everybody knows this name, hopefully. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Albert DeSalvo, Mm -hmm. the a.k.a. the Boston Strangler. Um, Bailey represented DeSalvo in what was called the Green Man Incidents. So there were kind of like two parallel events happening at the same time. You had the Green Man Incidents that were this string of sexual assaults that occurred in the 60s. You also had the Boston Strangler happening in the same area at the same time. Right. Um, Which happens a lot. Right. They thought these two might be connected, might not. Um, 
during his representation, DeSalvo actually confessed to Bailey that he was guilty of the Boston Strangler murders. Um, however, he was never tried for those in court. Okay. He was tried for the sexual assaults. Um, and it was like Bailey had actually worked out a deal where he would not be tried for the stranglings. Now, there there is a lot to that case, a lot that I'm not going into. We do not have time for that today. That's a whole other episode. It, it, yeah, it really is. Um, I highly suggest that if you want to know more about this case, you check out Stranglers. It's a podcast um, that covers Albert DeSalvo and the Boston Stranglers. Um they talk a lot about his statements not having a ton of credibility. There's a lot of inconsistencies. Um, so, I mean, it's definitely worth a listen mm-hmm. if you find that case interesting. Yes, Lots I of twists and turns and conspiracies. and. But, again, you know... They could be connected, but there can also be lots of people doing the exact same thing. And that's not unheard of. Happens a lot more <laughs> than you would expect, yeah, actually. Sadly. Yeah. Um, the next person he represented, that was kind of a big deal, mm-hmm. was Ernest El Medina. He was a U.S. Army captain who was court-martialed for his part in the My Lai Massacre during the Vietnam War. Um, it was alleged that Medina had allowed the men in his company to murder my line non-combatants, although he continuously denied these allegations. Um, the big chunk that helped his defense was that he claimed the um, men murdered the civilians of their own free will that they weren't told to. He um, also testified that he didn't discover that this was going on until it was too late. Uh, and that he was unable to stop the massacre. He also claimed that he did not personally kill any Vietnamese noncombatants at My Lai, with the exception of one young woman who he thought was carrying a a grenade. They had found her in a a ditch and ordered her to stand up, and when she stood up with her hands over her head, he said that it looked like she had a grenade, so he shot. Um... So in 1971, Bailey successfully defended Medina, who was found not guilty of all crimes. But honestly, after that, his military career was basically over. Um, An interesting little tidbit is that Bailey had a he had a large stake in the Entrim helicopter company, and he actually gave Medina a job at the Entrim helicopter company following the end of his military career and um, like following the defense of him. So, there's that. Uh, At this point, it seems that he was, like, finding a lot of success in the legal world, but it was really only when it came to defending other people, because he had a bit of a not-so-great record for himself. Um, In 1970, he was actually censured in Massachusetts for misconduct. Mm -hmm. And in 1971, he was suspended from practicing law in New Jersey. And then, in 1973, he was tried and acquitted for mail fraud. Oh. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, some things in his personal life might not have been going so great, but his legal career was at this point still kind of okay (laughs) the next big name client that he represented was patty hurst um who is a very interesting uh character she was a newspaper heiress who was kidnapped by the symbionese liberation army army also called the sla and after being kidnapped she um participated in armed bank robberies willingly um very like stockholm syndrome yeah i feel like she i don't know if it was necessarily stockholm syndrome but i feel like she got entrenched in that cult like it yeah. was a cult i watched a documentary on hbo about um the rolling stone magazine and, and when they covered that yeah and they did a lot of really intense interviews with members of that group and they were just like yeah she wanted to stay there she wanted to be a part of that group mm-hmm. and the higher-ups were like no she has to go we're getting too much heat so it was very like well you kidnapped a newspaper she, yeah, heiress she kidnapped she got kidnapped but then she was like i'm all in. yeah yeah <laughs> 
Uh, well, and of course you're going to get noticed for that when it's like right. somebody who is kind of in the public eye. Mm-hmm. Um, this was really like the first kind of unsuccessful trial for F. Lee Bailey. He wasn't able to avoid prison time for Patty Hearst. He kind of, uh, they talk a lot about him really botching his closing arguments during this case. They were kind of rambling and disjointed. Um, There was also, I think it was like a Patty Hearst autobiography. She kind of talked about how um, she thought that he might have been drunk, uh, that it wasn't proven but she felt like he she could smell it on him and that might have been why his closing arguments were a little disjointed is he might have been drinking the sauce a little bit i think maybe it was probably just because of how high profile that was Mm -hmm. and the government was involved in it yeah that that's probably why it was like oh god (laughs) but before i mean to be fair before that before patty hearst he had already argued in front of the u.s supreme court and represented a general in the military that got court-martialed so it's like yeah but the military courts are a little bit different oh way different different and regulations than you know the standard court yeah true um so ultimately, Patty Hearst was convicted. Um, she was sentenced to seven years. She served 22 months um, before her sentence was commuted by Jimmy Carter in 1977. And then later, she was actually pardoned by Bill Clinton in 2001. Um, the trial was like this momentary misstep for Bailey, but he was able to avoid further death penalty prosecution by kind of brokering this deal with um, prosecutors for Hearst to receive immunity in exchange for her testimony about the specifically a robbery that happened at Crocker Bank in Carmichael, California. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with her being the getaway driver um, in that particular robbery. But she was still culpable of the murder that happened because it was a murderer during the um, the bank robbery. Yeah, during the what do they call it? It's Commit- like during committing a committing a felony yeah. in the com- um, um, yeah you know acquisition of a crime. There you go. <laughs> um, so she didn't end up getting the death penalty uh, thanks to Bailey, but she still had to serve a little time. Right. Uh, Ethley Bailey had kind of, he was also this kind of like, uh, he loved being in the media. Right. He, a lot of these high profilers do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and following Patty Hearst's trial, he kind of had this media circuit where he was like appearing on TV and giving lectures, and he's written a couple of books. Um, by the next time he appeared in court, However, it was for himself because he got charged with drunk driving in Uh 1982. His defense lawyer is someone that you might recognize, a little man named Robert Shapiro. Bobby! Yeah, right? (laughs) Um, Shapiro, who uh, also defended O.J. Simpson Mm -hmm. later on, Um, he was actually able to get Bailey acquitted but this trial left such a negative impression on him that he felt compelled to write this book. Um, it was called How to Protect Yourself Against Cops in California and Other Strange Places. Because uh, <laughs> it's strange places. Yeah. California is um, kind of strange. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I've never been there. Um, I assume it is from what I see on TV. <laughs> Not as bad as Florida. We'll just put uh, <laughs> uh, The book claimed serious abuses by the police and argued that political pressure was a huge motivation for police to go after celebrities. I'm assuming he also meant himself as a quote-unquote celebrity because he's kind of a celebrity Obviously. lawyer. <laughs> All right. The next person he represented was a man named Claude Dubac. And in 1984, um, he defended Dubak on a drug smuggling and money laundering charge. Uh, he was able to negotiate a plea deal in which Dubak agreed to turn over his assets um, to the U.S. government, including some stock that he held in a, uh, I believe it was a pharmaceutical company called Biochem. And at the time, it was worth approximately $6 million dollars. Well, when they went to collect 
particularly these stocks that he he held, they discovered that Bailey had actually held on to millions of dollars worth of the stocks and used the profits to um, from their sales to cover like personal expenses. Mm-hmm. At the time, Bailey was not in a great spot with the IRS. Um, I think he had two tax liens on him, which if you ask me what those are, I couldn't tell you because I have no idea, but I know they're not great. It has to do with like owing the yeah. government. Yeah. And if you don't pay it back, then they can take like your mortgage and your car and all that stuff. Right. And so he was taking the excess of the $6 million. There was extra from the profits to try to pay that money back. And the government found out basically, um, he, he was found, uh, in contempt of court. And spent six weeks in jail until he was able to find enough money to pay the government back, which um, I believe it was his brother ended up finding the money somewhere. Finding. Yeah. Quotes on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I found money. But he ended up having to spend like six weeks in jail for that. So that that's sucks. cool. And he was still able to practice law. Mm-hmm. Bananas. For a little while longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next person that he represented is probably the one that he's most known for. Everybody knows. Uh... O.J. Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Bailey actually joined the defense team, which, like I said, it included his previous own former defense lawyer, Robert Shapiro. Um, he joined the defense team just before the preliminary hearings. His probably his most famous moment in the trial is considered to be when he cross-examined Mark Furman, who was a detective in the investigation of Uh, the death of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Um, The big thing that happened here is he was able to get Furman to say on the stand that he had never used the N word Mm -hmm. to describe people of color at any time in the last 10 years. There was evidence to the opposite of that. I believe they had him recorded um, they had audio tape of him talking about using the N-word to describe, like, openly using the N-word to describe people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, uh, it, it basically caused Furman to plead the fifth during the remainder of his testimony, uh, which was a huge win for the defense. Not so great for the, the prosecution, because obviously this is the guy who was investigating O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Um So, yeah. So, of course, as we all know, O.J. Simpson was famously acquitted of the murders. Thanks to... Right? Um, This, of course, was thanks to F. Lee Bailey and Robert Shapiro, along with the rest of his defense team that included Johnny Cochran, Barry Sheck, and Robert Kardashian. If you do not know about the O.J. Simpson trial, you have been living under a rock... And you need to, (laughs) yeah, it is, um, it's a hot mess. It's a hot mess. It's one of those really interesting moments in like true crime history Mm -hmm. that is still hotly contested today. Um, the slippery legal slope that occurred. Yeah. There was a a lot of stuff that happened in that case. Yeah. Like you said, that was a show. There was some, I think, mishandling of evidence and the way they actually treated him because he was a celebrity was different. So, I mean, like, really, if you have, I'd be really surprised if people have not heard of who O.J. Simpson is. Unless they were born in, like, 1999. (laughs) God, I wonder if I could go to, like, my mom's fifth graders and be like, do you know who O.J. Simpson is? And have them be like, like, who's that? The juice. (laughs) Is it juice? Oh, no. It is Uh, the juice. Jeez. So there were a couple other cases that he covered following the O.J. Simpson trial, but there wasn't really anything of note in there. Um, Thanks to his handling of the Dubat case in Florida, however, the Florida Supreme Court decided in 2001 to disbar him from practicing law in the state. Um, And then they were followed by Massachusetts disbarring him two years later. So they basically were like, you're done. For now. Good day, sir. Yeah. See ya. Um, In 2009, Bailey moved to Maine. And then in 2012, he took and passed the Maine bar exam, which the bar exams vary state to state, Mm -hmm. um, and applied for a law license. 
The main board of bar examiners, however, voted five to four to deny his license, saying that he hadn't proved by clear and convincing evidence that he possesses the requisite honesty and integrity to practice law. But he's a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. They don't really have, you know, the greatest integrity. Well, some do. What about those really awesome defense lawyers? I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, They did, of course, appeal this decision. And it ultimately, at the end of the day, was denied. So he was not granted his license. Mm. Um, There was a lot of, like, back and forth in there. Like, he appealed. And then the next, that court of appeals reversed the decision. And then it went back up to the Supreme Court. And they said, actually, we're reversing it back. And so he didn't get it. Did not get his law license back. Um, Basically, since then... He's been living in Maine, uh, and he hadn't really been in the headlines at all since 2012 until the recent release of O.J. Simpson in 2017 for a charge unrelated to the murder. Um, Many news outlets did like this kind of series of where are they now articles in relation to the O.J. Simpson trial, Um, but he is 84 years old now and most news outlets kind of describe him as disbarred and flat broke like that's kind of what his life has ended up as the first crime con yeah (laughs) they probably didn't pay him well i mean they at least gave him a room he probably maybe you know what i think that you have to pay for like signatures and stuff like autographs at most of those kinds of shows so i'm sure someone was like sign my book yeah (laughs) i'm sure um In 2016, he filed for bankruptcy related to the issues with the Dubot case, so the taxes that he owed the IRS and the whole deal with the government. Um, But a lot of people blame his inability to practice law again on the O.J. Simpson trial specifically, um, because a lot of people view him as basically getting the celebrity off. I think there are a lot of conflicting opinions on whether or not O.J. Simpson is guilty or not. Obviously, he was acquitted in a court of law, so that's what <laughs> we have to say. Really hard. Uh, he was found not guilty of the murders, but um, some people see that as him kind of getting this guilty guy off um, because he was good at his job. Yeah. And I get that. Um, but it definitely kind of made him blacklisted in the legal community. Um, I also saw that they talked a lot too, like following the OJ Simpson trial, Effley Bailey actually had a pretty good rela- relationship with OJ where he would, um, after he got arrested in Las Vegas, he would call Effley Bailey from prison and the two would kind of talk and catch up. Um, but, It was like once the trials and stuff were sort of ramping up for the Las Vegas trial, Mm -hmm. um, his OJ's current uh, legal counsel advised him to basically steer clear. Like if you want any shot, you got to steer clear of Bailey because he was just like bad news spares. Yeah. So that's kind of where he's at. He's 84 and he's living in Maine with a hairdresser. It's his girlfriend. It's like I a hairdresser. Mean, he could do consulting. I mean, he yeah, he does. He does have that. a consulting business yeah. um, that he's still running, but it doesn't. I mean, I get the impression that it's kind of like small town Maine. It's not like a huge. Did he write a book market about for his it. time? In the oh, I'm sure he's trial? he's written quite a few books. Yeah, I'm saying like you can be a consultant and really write your books, he's, especially now. Yeah, um, with the way that true crime is kind of like booming and more and more people are becoming interested in the topic mm-hmm. it would be easy for him to make money doing appearances and discussing right you know, these sort of cases that yeah. he went over i mean people would very gladly pay for that yeah so crime con. yeah right. <laughs> so that is Flea bailey Flea bailey he's just a i think he's just a really interesting like he's kind of a polarizing figure you right. i wait till you get to mine yeah <laughs> right uh i just have always found that history really interesting as somebody who is kind of n- notorious for these high profile cases and successfully defending those people um it's I not, mean, you can't hate a person for doing their job and doing it well. Right. 
I mean, that's what they're paid to do. At the end of the day, that's probably not how they feel. And they probably know more Mm -hmm. um, than they're allowed to to say. But that's, you know, client attorney privilege. Yeah, I mean, you Mm -hmm. can't, whether or not you like him or dislike him, you can't dispute that he did have a relatively successful um, legal career until Mm -hmm. kind of the very end there. But he was really successful in his professional life. And that is just a fact. Exactly. All right. Well, Ashley Bailey was very fascinating. Uh, but we're going to talk Thanks. about <laughs> another polarizing uh, lawyer. And I wanted to look for someone who was um, a female lawyer because, you know, I love me some strong Because ladies women. can be lawyers, too. Yeah. I want a strong woman. So I'm going to talk about Gloria Allred. Ooh. <laughs> I feel like I've heard this name a lot recently. Oh, yes. yes. I wonder why. It does sound familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> um, she is most notably recently known for representing 28 women accusing Bill Cosby of assault. Um, but what you don't know is Gloria Allred is actually a woman and children's rights advocate and she was also involved in the Drew Peterson case. Whoa. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, my. So I'm going to give you a little background, just go over a couple cases and then kind of some controversy that she's mm. had. Uh, so it'll be a nice little roller coaster. Um, I know that we said we didn't have any trigger warnings, but there was going to be one point in my story where it's oh. going to be like a little Well, why didn't you and... stop me when I said there wasn't any? Well, I mean, I don't go into detail oh, about okay. it, but it's, it's just definitely... Gonna make, it's going to bum you out. It's uh, was a trauma, like a traumatizing experience for her. Oh, okay. So I gotcha. Okay, so um, Gloria Allred was born in 1941 in Pennsylvania. She uh, married her college boyfriend and had one child, which was Lisa Bloom, who is also a very famous lawyer. Um, just shortly after Lisa's birth, the two divorced. I believe she was about three when they got divorced. Okay. Um, in 1961, she decided to move back in with her parents, and she continued her education. She earned a bachelor's in English, and English can't speak English, um, and a master's in education, and she started working as a teacher. So that's what she was doing originally before yeah. she ever dreamt about becoming a lawyer. Teachers are cool. Teachers are dope. Okay, now this is the part of the story where it's going to be like, oh, no. Okay, so during a family vacation with her parents and her child, um, they went to Acapulco, Mexico in 1966. While there, Gloria was raped at gunpoint. Now, that's not even the worst part of the story. She had become pregnant from this assault and was seeking an abortion. Now, this was 1966. Abortion is illegal for doctors to perform. Um, So Allred had a back alley abortion. I'm assuming that she was looking for an abortion in the United States. Correct. Okay. This wasn't like while she was still in Acapulco. No, no, no. Okay. They had left and she found out when she got back. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Now, after undergoing this procedure, she became um, infected. She started hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. It did not go well. Um, And then she had to uh, be hospitalized. And when you... When you go into the hospital with those symptoms, they know right. what happened. And actually, a lot of times, they won't even treat you. They'll just let you die. Ugh. Thankfully, though, they did treat her, and she did not die. Yay! <laughs> um, but she did not want to report the rape, she said, because she didn't think anyone would believe her. Which is pretty common, I yeah. think. So um, this whole experience is basically... The catapult that put her forward to become an advocate for women's rights and children's rights and get her on the path to becoming a lawyer. Yeah. So um, in 1968, just two years after this happened, she would marry her second husband. Um, During this time, she sought to go back to school to become a lawyer. And in 1975, she was officially welcomed into the California State Bar. Hooray! Uh, she would eventually divorce this husband in 1987. She doesn't have a very good track record with these men. Eh. I feel like she's just a very, very strong, opinionated yeah. woman, and she doesn't take BS. Yeah. Especially from this motherfucker, because in 1987, when they started to get divorced, was the same time he was being investigated for fraud for selling fake aerospace parts. Whoa! He was like a fucking millionaire. He was involved with lots of government contracts. Yeah, but I feel like sold- you would not, like... 
That would be so bad if right, so she, these aerospace parts just like break in the middle of... She felt betrayed by this, and that was what really pushed her to get a divorce from him. Because yeah. she's like, I'm not being involved with this. And Good he, for like, her. filed for bankruptcy, and like he just mm-hmm. went to the shit show that was his life <laughs> into fucking jail. Um, so, yeah. Um, she actually has never been with a man since. Oh. You go, was, girl. Which is a little sad, because it's like... You know, that was like the ultimate betrayal. Yeah. Well. And she's like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's like, would you really want to date another, like, open up to another person like that when you find out that your husband is, like, fraudulent? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, and they had a messy, messy, messy divorce. Yeah. You can look at a bunch of the articles about their divorce. It was all over the newspaper in 1987. It was bad yeah um he was suing her a lot because he was trying to recoup some money so oh, that sure. i mean he he had to file for bankruptcy he had nothing yeah and she was like hell to the no you're on your own yeah <laughs> so um after she you know passed the state bar she decided that she was going to start a law firm and it was called alred morocco and goldberg and it was with fellow Loyola graduate students, um, Michael Morocco and Nathan Goldberg. And they opened officially in 1976. Okay. Her first lawsuit was against a chain store in which claimed that boys and girls toys should not be separated in the toys aisle. In the toy aisle, like very distinctly boys and very distinctly girls. Um, it should be all inclusive and not labeled as boys toys only and girls toys only. Oh. So kind of like a really, you know, low key sort of lawsuit that this family um, did against this, like, dime store, okay. basically. I mean, <laughs> it's not, I get not having, like, literally aisles that say boys, toys, girls, toys. But even if you look at now, yeah. it's just how naturally they're separated, but right. it's not like a... It doesn't definitively say boys' no. toys. Yeah. It's like dolls. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, that, that's the thing is like, you generally put the same things that have the same traits in the same aisle. So if it's a bunch of dolls, all your dolls are going to be in one aisle and all your right. Legos are going to be in one aisle and all your action figures are going to be in one aisle. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, in the Netflix documentary, um, Seeing All Red, they mm-hmm. kind of go over it and there's like a news um, interview that she does with the family in the aisle of the toy store. Oh, really? So it's really fascinating. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, she was more well-known for her publicity stunts and tactics to kind of garner attention for cases. Um, she once held a sit-in for days to protest the mistreatment of women and children of color who apply for government housing. Cool. Um, she also, this is my favorite story, she gifted a homemade chastity belt oh. to another lawyer during a case on abortions rights. So what was it made of? It was like um have you ever seen like WWE belts? Yeah. It was like that. <laughs> but then it had the little, you know, the little strip that goes under yeah. for a chastity belt. Yeah. So you can't have access. Oh my god, that's so funny. Yeah. So she's very like in <laughs> she's your such face. a troll. She's just like, oh trolling you, people left and you right. You think a woman should just keep her clothes her uh legs closed? Well here's a chastity belt so you can keep your fucking pants on kind of a thing. Like, yeah. Right? Oh my god. <laughs> like it's not all the women's responsibility. So I'm gonna just read a couple cases that she's kind of most known for and then we're gonna talk about the Drew Peterson case. Sure. That. All right. So um, in 2012, Allred took on the case of Jenna Talakov, who was a Canadian transgender woman who was challenging her disqualification for the Miss Universe Canada pageant for not naturally being born a woman. Okay. <laughs> so um, she also defended two women involved in a sexual battery lawsuit against actor John Travolta. Um, Allred also wrote a letter to the Senate Ethics Committee in 1992 asking them to investigate the actions of Oregon Senator Bob Packwood, who had been the subject of a newspaper article that detailed his history of sexual assault, like pages of history of sexual assault. Yeah. Um, she kept pressure on the committee and urged Packwood to release his diaries, which, fun fact, he kept track of every woman appointment, woman appointment that he had. Hmm. Gross. The committee eventually gross. voted for his expulsion, and he resigned. So, good on ya. Um, in 2002, Allred represented the family of Gwen Arahu, um, who was a transgender teen who was brutally beaten to death when it was learned that she had been assigned male at birth. 
um, it was kind of like a a local group of people in their like area where they lived. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really really sad story. Um, she also represented English actress Charlotte Lewis, who alleged that director Roman Polanski had sexually abused her in, in her in his Paris apartment when she was 16. Uh, I was like, Bula. Side note, they just uh, ejected Roman Polanski from the film, what was it? The film, the guild film something. Filmmakers Guild? Filmmakers Guild? I think yeah. it might be the Filmmakers Guild. Yes, yeah, so it's like um, the it was actor, him and, Screen Actors Guild. He was and Weinstein, probably. Yeah, I was going to say it was him and somebody else. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty... Yeah, I think you're right. It was Weinstein just recently, like mm-hmm. within the last month. They, I yep. mean, so after they how many years, then. but... That's yeah. Really, that's well, and Roman Polanski hasn't even been living in the United States nope. for 30-something years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which, tell me how he's not been... Whatever, that's a whole other story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, on November 11th of 2017, Allred held a press conference representing her ki- her client, Beverly Young Nelson, as she made a statement alleging her sexual assault perpetrated by Roy Moore when she was 60 years old. The Roy Moore? The Roy fucking that's Moore. That's been in the news? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm going to show you a two-minute clip later that Vice did, um, where they kind of interview her and ask her five questions, Mm -hmm. and she's going to talk about the Roy Moore case just a touch. (laughs) Um, So one of the cases that she was involved in that fascinated me the most was her um, involvement with Amber Frey. Mm -hmm. If you followed the Scott Peterson case, um, Amber Frey was Peterson's former girlfriend who he was dating at the time that his wife, Lacey Peterson, had been missing and then found to be killed, mm-hmm. um, Frey was unaware that Peterson was married. Um, and then Frey learned he was married after her friend had shown her an article about the disappearance of Lacey Peterson. And all of the sudden, she started putting two together. Like, they showed his vehicle. Yeah. They showed a picture of him. Her name was Peterson. She's like, what the fuck? Right, yeah. She immediately called the police. Good for her. And the police said, would you be comfortable recording conversations with him? Yeah. So obviously she agreed. Right. So she um, started recording these conversations, not directly asking him, but just being like, why would you lie to me? Um, you know, how long have you been married? Kind of trying to get him yeah. to open up a little bit more so they could get some sort of information. Yeah. And she became the star witness of that trial. And she really, like, sealed the deal on his conviction. But Allred was representing her because she was afraid that if that got overthrown or if he started doing appeals, that she was going to be in danger. Right. So she hired Allred and... Um, I believe she also sued mm-hmm. um, Drew Peterson for libel, if I remember correctly. Could be, um, yeah. I mean, she was just, I, first of all, badass. Second of all, like, fucking stand up in court and tell him to go fuck himself kind of a thing. Like, that was yeah, amazing. From what I remember from uh, interviews that I've seen with her, she basically was like, kept her cool she was like i didn't really change anything how yeah. how i was acting around him just mm-hmm. kept it the same and he kind of just you know you can actually hear some of her conversations that were recorded um i'll put up the link to uh like the where are they now mm-hmm. article that i read about amber Frey from bustle um but she talks about why she did it, um, what she was thinking when she was recording these conversations, and how hard it was for her to ask questions without outright saying, yeah, just like giving wife, giving herself away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was like the number one case where I was like, oh fuck, I forgot that she represented her. Yeah. (laughs) She also defended, um, more recently three women accusing Trump of sexual assault. Um, which that was a whole, debacle yeah. in and of itself. I think um, some of that is still in litigation, too, because yeah. I, I know... Um, They're really I trying think, to, you know, shut it down. I feel like forward. she just did an interview with, um, I want to say it was with Jeremy Scahill on um, uh, Intercepted, mm-hmm. where they kind of talk about... Um, obviously, she can't talk specifics about those right. cases, because um, I think they even might have had her involved in some of the stormy daniels stuff a little bit uh maybe like with her lawyer um that 
I don't, I don't know. She's very, I like listening to her talk. She's very intelligent. Yes, and, she is extremely yeah. intelligent and, and very well-spoken. like, go fuck yourself. Oh yeah, totally. Be. <laughs> totally. Um, so I'm not going to really talk about the, the Cosby case. Cause I feel like that is probably the most well-known and most inform, like all the information's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely go watch the seeing all red documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It goes into that case in a great deal. Okay. And, um, talks a little bit about her life, but it really discusses like the poignant parts of her career, but specifically it really shines light on that specific case. Okay. Um, now I told you previously that her daughter was Lisa Bloom, who is also a lawyer. She's very well known for representing, um, a lot of celebrities. Um, but she also was part of the legal team for Harvey Weinstein. Uh Uh-oh. This was a huge fight and controversy that she had with her mother, Gloria. And Gloria stated publicly in an interview um, with a newspaper that she was disappointed in her daughter. And she publicly criticized her for her association with him. Yikes. This led Lisa Bloom to leave the Harvey Weinstein team. Smart. But not before there was a huge controversy about her being recorded saying, I knew about some sexual assaults, but I didn't know about that. Oh, so, no. kind of alluded to the fact that she knew that he had done a great deal of the things he was accused of. Um, but again, you have, you know, you have client attorney privilege and you're not at liberty to discuss that. I don't know what happens after you drop a person, though. Yeah. But... Even I think that knew. attorney client privilege still stands as right. long as you were receiving payment for your representation. Yeah. Yeah. So she was under fire for that. She actually was doing a lot of interviews and like side consulting work for like a bunch of news um, mm-hmm. shows. And she got fired from a couple of them because of that statement. <laughs> Oops. So, yeah. She publicly apologized for her involvement and said, like, she said, you know, I was part of this team. And they were just happened to be, you know, hired by Harvey Weinstein's, uh, not him personally, but his production group. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a difficult situation. I kind of get where you're, where she's coming from. Because if you work for a company, a job's a job and you can't say, you know. I'd rather not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you might have a little bit more freedom to say that in the legal world than you do in like, you know, normal whatever but i mean if your boss says this is who we're representing you know Mm -hmm. i don't know that's a tough situation it's really yeah but i mean gloria allred has been heralded as like (laughs) this is my favorite thing that someone's ever called her the ambulance chaser of feminism (laughs) like that's great great. statement that's great and she's been accused of using extreme tactics and being a media whore um, but I, I mean, it really takes a strong person to kind of bring attention or draw attention to these major issues. Yeah. And of course she's been over the top, but she sees results. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to leave you with this two minute vice, uh, clip of this little interview that vice did with Gloria Allred. And it's a little funny and a little quippy. So, um, enjoy that. But this is, uh, this is Gloria Allred. I'm Gloria Allred. I'm an attorney, and I deal with facts and with the law, unlike certain people on the Internet who just make up stuff. This is Vicepedia. Let me put any rumors to rest. The suit that I am wearing is not a hand-me-down from Marge Simpson. I don't buy Chanel. Instead of buying a suit, I would prefer to invest in a lawsuit. Gloria Allred is a media hound. I make no apologies. I'm very proud of all of the courageous clients that I have represented. Name calling will never stop them either because the status quo is completely unacceptable. So folks, if that's all you've got, I'm sorry. But you're losing this battle. Yes, I have been accused of being powerful. But I have never been accused of being sexy or having anything to do with sex. So thank you very much for the compliment. This was part of the propaganda that 
was put on the internet by supporters of Roy Moore. The signature of Roy Moore in the yearbook has been examined by an expert. And this expert believes that that was Roy Moore's signature. So definitely not yours. That is Roy Moore's signature in the yearbook. Donald Trump said in 2012 that Gloria Allred would be, quote, very, very impressed, end quote, with his penis. Mr. Trump, I don't have a magnifying glass strong enough to see something that small. I just went to the worst McDonald's and they gave me nearly burnt chicken tenders. I'm calling the police and my lawyer, Gloria Allred. I will say this, no one has ever accused me of being a chicken. Can you tell us what this press conference is about? No. Vicepedia. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that because it was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, but that just gives you some insight in how um, strong of a personality she has and how she takes zero bullshit from anyone. So, <laughs> fair. Yeah, she's pretty savage. Yeah, so that's glory all red, y'all. Y'all. <laughs> well, we just gave you a real light episode. Hopefully that was yes. a nice little palate cleanser, but... If you need something else, why don't you check out this podcast? Ooh. Ooh tell me more. <laughs> tell me Roy more? No. Oh, no. Boo. Oh, no. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nicole. Sarah. Hillary. And we're the hosts of the Feminine Mistake Podcast. Each month we sit down with a guest to watch movies that are 20 years or older. And see how they hold up to today's modern feminist lens. Why do mermaids have such low self-esteem? Why is it so funny when men take care of babies? What exactly did Jenny die of in Love Story? These are the kind of hard questions we ask ourselves on the Feminine Mistake Podcast. The Feminine Mistake Podcast. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Podbean. Do you guys think that was okay? Yeah, I don't know. We sounded kind of shrill. Really? Yeah, women's voices are just so grating on the radio. Yeah. Oh, man, you're right. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard those guys over at the Nerdist or Last Podcast on the left? I mean, they're just biologically more funny than we are. That's so true. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that is our show for today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more like this on the badtastecrimcast.com. Nope. Do it. No, the. Just badtastecrimcast.com. <laughs> I even know our website by now. Yeah, it's been I know. a year, Vicky. I know. Um, we're also uh, pretty active on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, thebadtastecrimecast.com, and on Twitter at btcrimecast. Jill, you got shout out for us um, today? I have shout out from Instagram. There's this company called Creepy Candles, Ooh. and they make candles that are in the shape of a hand that when they melt, <gasps> it bleeds, and then there's a skeleton. Body. Oh my god, that's um, so cool. I need those in my life. They're pretty great, but they kind of um, shouted us out a little bit and was like, this is a really cool podcast, because I was asking them questions about their you know products yeah and they're like such a great cool podcast so definitely check out creepy candles their stuff is amazing i'm, I'm looking at their for... website right now oh <gasps> they have one that's a spine too yeah. oh my a brain in a jar Ugh. it's really really it. fun and spooky and that's weird, super which cool is like my fucking jam so check out creepy candles on instagram it's creepy underscore candles and just check out their awesome stuff. Yep. Like, if you're looking for their website, it's creepycandles.net. Yep. And it's very bloody. Yes. It's, always, awesome. it's like, amazing. I'll go and I'll ask questions about these things like, hey, you know, I'm interested in this product. Can you tell me about whatever, whatever. And I'll forget that I'm on our podcast <laughs> Instagram oh, yeah. instead of my personal one. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, my God, you're a podcast. And I'm like, shit, I forgot. It's like, yes, I am a podcast. Yeah, for example. No. Oops. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. I have, yeah, this is my business. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, right. About that product. So apparently, now Janelle is just the podcast. Yeah. You are the podcast. I mean, on you don't even, you don't even need me anymore. You are the podcast. Stop. Oh. 
goodbye. This is my la- no this is my last taste. episode. There's no bad taste without the crime cast. Oh, so wait, are you the bad taste? I then? am the bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> You're the crime oh, cast. God. <laughs> uh, before we get out of here, I also want to mention if you want to support the show financially, you can do that. Uh, we do have a Patreon. If you want to be a recurring donor, Janelle is doing a four part <laughs> series. On- I like I used no, my name all sorry, weird. Janelle. <laughs> yeah, no. Janelle's doing a four part series on the um, Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. So you can check that out if you are a yeah. member of our Patreon. Um, go get the book by Michelle McNamara, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Then you can kind of follow along a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a nice review of her book and the you know kind of current news and such. Nah. How they caught him. Nice. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to, obviously. <laughs> it is greatly appreciated, but you don't have to. Um, you can do a one-time donation to our PayPal as well, badchasecrimecast at gmail.com. Um, and that just kind of helps us out um, with, you know, there are costs involved with podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Little did we know. <laughs> um, one thing I don't think I've mentioned in a while, if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and leave us an iTunes review. Yes, please. Um, it definitely helps kind of spread the bad taste word and get <laughs> some more taste jam get some more folks listening some like-minded folks and we get better engagement on our facebook you guys can yes. talk about true crimey things Ugh. yes don't you want and true I crime love, friends i love the communities that happen when people who start listening to the same podcast get together yeah that's yeah. just like my favorite thing when our like our fans talk to each other mm-hmm. it's amazing yeah and you you just get these like nice friendships and these great discussions and it's just you it's meet beautiful. all these interesting people from all over the place it's so it's, it's so beautiful we love it you guys oh my God. <laughs> um i think is that it you got anything um, else yeah, that's that's it for this week all right short and sweet short and sweet uh <laughs> so sweet but you know short Definitely short. Short. <laughs> Our sound and editing is done by Tiff Weech. Our music is done by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. Thanks. Noise. Noise. <laughs> Thank you guys, as always. Uh, we will see you in two weeks. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. Strangler has murdered ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town.